Reformed believers have always believed that it is the duty of the civil magistrates to do all they can to uphold and preserve the integrity of the church so the gospel can be proclaimed because there is a greater kingdom. So when you have a king or a prince or a magistrate or a president or a vice president or Congress or a governor or whatever that thinks their kingdom is more important and their kingdom is higher, they are the ones in rebellion against God. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and be turning to Mark chapter 6 once again. This is where we left off a couple of Sundays ago, Mark chapter 6, and we're looking at verses 14 through 29. The title of these messages and this passage of Scripture, I have called Ungodly Civil Magistrates. Ungodly Civil Magistrates. We're really looking at a couple of different things. We're looking, first of all, at the account that Scripture gives regarding the death of John the Baptist. And in doing that, we are looking at the characteristics of Herod, a magistrate, a political official of Jesus' day. And by looking at his life and analyzing his life, we have sought to really see some of the characteristics that are often pervasive with civil magistrates and politicians throughout the history of the world. So this is a very practical portion of Scripture when you begin to ask some very significant questions regarding politics, civil government, and the role that civil government plays with respect to the kingdom of God. So let's look together again at Mark chapter 6. When you find your place there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. And I want to read this text in its entirety. We'll review just a few minutes, and then we'll continue looking the rest of the verses together. Now hear God's Word, beginning in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's holy word. Please be seated as we ask for the Lord's help. Our 
Our Father in Heaven, this is such a sobering passage of Scripture. Lord, not only because we read of the murder of John the Baptist, the last and greatest Old Testament prophet, the man whom Jesus said was the greatest man ever born of women, but also because we have a sense, Lord, of the sort of aggression that Christians even in our world face today from hostile political forces. Oh Lord, how we pray you would grant us wisdom, grant us courage, help us to discern how we ought to live in the days we live in as we look back at the days of Christ and John the Baptist and what occurred to John because of his faithfulness to you, to your kingdom, and to your word. Bless us, your people, as we study this passage, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As John Calvin said one time, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And that has really been, I think, true throughout the history of the world. There has always been conflict among pastors, prophets, clergy, and civil magistrates. There is a reason for this. And the reason is found in an obvious contradiction. How can it be that a civil magistrate, a king, a politician, a president, a prime minister can have a kingdom that has order and that has laws but not give deference to God and His laws? By what standard does a civil magistrate maintain order and laws, and by what standard does a politician require of people to obey those laws if he himself does not have the standard of the Holy Scriptures and the standard of the Ten Commandments and the reality that there is only one true and final king? The very fact that many kings, if not most kings and kingdoms throughout the world, have lived with that contradiction, has resulted in revolts and rebellions, and many times these revolutions have come even at the hands of Christians, because Christians understand that is hypocrisy. To have a kingdom that has laws... By what standard do you have laws unless those laws are patterned after the laws of God? And if you have laws, by what standard do you say that those laws should be maintained if they are just laws according to that particular government's wisdom and understanding of what right and wrong is? You see, the more that you study this, the more that you must come to the conclusion, Christian, that there is only one true kingdom. There is only one true king. And it matters not who the civil magistrate is. It matters not what time period you live in in human history. There is only one king. There is only one kingdom. And every civil magistrate is obligated, whether they are a professing Christian or not, to submit to this king and to follow the laws of this king. And when said king or said politician or said president or prime minister does not do that, it always brings the judgment of God. We read earlier for our public reading of Scripture, Daniel chapter 3, and we noted the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar set up a golden image and he required quite arrogantly for everyone to bow down to this image because he thought he was a god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. Their faithfulness and their courage, as we saw, was rewarded, and this king actually had some sort of at least temporal repentance in acknowledging the fact that he was not the final king and he wasn't God, and even if he was a god, he was a smaller god than the god of heaven and earth, the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And God actually blessed Babylon in that sense because of the submission of an ungodly king to the true king. You don't have to have a Christian nation and Christian politicians for God to bless a nation when Christians recognize God's true law. 
and recognize God as the God of heaven and earth. And when politicians who otherwise are not Christian recognize in some form and fashion the authority of one true and final king. See, the problem with Herod, as we look at the character of Herod, is the fact that he was in conflict with Christ's kingdom. That is why he wanted John the Baptist dead. That is why he killed John the Baptist, even though he kind of liked John the Baptist. He was not a man of courage, but cowardice. He was more scared of his wife than he was God himself. And he should have feared both the words and the message of John the Baptist as well as the God whose message John proclaimed. But as we look at this passage, we noted the fact that Mark, who writes this account in this particular gospel, wants us to understand this conflict that will take place between Christians, prophets and preachers in particular, and civil magistrates. He has given to us what we refer to as a Markan sandwich. We saw the first piece of bread in verses 7 through 13 where Jesus sends the apostles out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Then when we get to verse 30, we see the second piece of bread. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Miracles were occurring. Demons were being exercised. People were being healed. The gospel was being preached with great power and great authority. Souls were being saved. The apostles sent out. The apostles returned. But what is the meat of the point of this Mark and Sandwich? Well, the meat is verses 14 through 29, where Mark wants to tell us that it doesn't matter if you live in the days of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you are John the Baptist. It doesn't matter who you are and where you are and where you live, that when the people of God proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, it will come with great persecution, hostility from political authorities. What we face today in the United States of America is nothing new under the sun. God has given to this nation and God has given to the West in a way, Western civilization, a reprieve from persecution and murder and hatred of Christians. He has not promised that this is the way that it would be. In fact, he has promised the opposite. That generally speaking, we will be hated for following Christ. That if they hated Jesus Christ, they will hate us. If they killed the prophets, they will kill the preachers. As a matter of fact, uh, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 23, it's always good to see what the other gospel writers say. In the last week of our Lord's life, Jesus made some indicting remarks to the religious leaders of Israel, who, by the way, were in cahoots with the Romans in the murder of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 29, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Oh, we're better than them. We we wouldn't have killed the prophets of God? Verse 31, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents. You brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. You are murderers of the prophets, just like your father's who killed Zechariah by the sanctuary of the temple? 
And what does he say in verse 37? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city and capital that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. That was the history of Israel. And that was the history of Israel, not just with the religious leaders, but with the political leaders. One evil king after another. Now, of course, as New Covenant Christians, we follow passages like Romans chapter 13. And in keeping with the Reformed tradition and with the Reformed confessions, we acknowledge the role of the civil magistrate to maintain order. We acknowledge the role of the civil magistrate as appointed by God, to borrow the language loosely of Romans 13, to punish evildoers and to reward those who do good. But... The Westminster Confession also says that civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments. And it does not hold the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's another way of saying that the government has no right to tell Christians to keep their mouths shut. The government has no right to tell Christians when to meet, where to meet, how to meet. That is the sphere of of the ministers of the word of God. The confession goes on to say, yet God hath authority and he doth give authority to the civil magistrate and it is the duty of the civil magistrate to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure, that all blaspheming and heresies be suppressed and all ordinances of God be settled administered, and observed. Now that may come as a shock to you that the Westminster Standards say that according to Scripture, it is the duty of the President of the United States that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed. But that's what we believe. We believe that it is the duty of the civil magistrate in submission to God to maintain the preservation of the church, freedom of religion, and worship. The second Helvetic Confession follows the same vein. It says, Let the civil magistrate suppress stubborn heretics who cease not to blaspheme the majesty of God and to trouble the church. It's the duty of the civil magistrates to stop those who trouble the church. But in our day, the civil magistrates are the very ones who are troubling the church. The Scots Confession, John Knox says that the civil magistrates are in place for the preservation and purification of religion. Particularly, it is the duty of kings, princes, rulers, and magistrates. They're not only appointed for civil government, but also to maintain true religion. What about the Belgic Confession? The office of civil magistrate is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also to protect the sacred ministry that the kingdom of Christ may be thus promoted. Reformed believers have always believed that it is the duty of the civil magistrates to do all they can to uphold and preserve the integrity of the church so the gospel can be proclaimed because there is a greater kingdom. So when you have a king or a prince or a magistrate or a president or a vice president or Congress or a governor or whatever that thinks their kingdom is more important and their kingdom is higher, they are the ones in rebellion against God. John Calvin in the French Confession says, and I quote, God has put the sword into the hands of magistrates to suppress those crimes against the first table of the law as well as against the second table of the law. So we oftentimes think of the civil government as upholding the second table of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Calvin says, no, no, no. It's also the duty of the civil magistrate to uphold the first table of the law. What is that? To put people in the best possible position to love the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. To have no other gods before them. So this is the heritage of the Reformed tradition. And that is why what we're speaking about is so very, very, very important. You have many Christians today, beloved, 
who appeal to Romans chapter 13 and saying it does not matter what the government says. If the government tells us to do something, we are obligated to obey it. But that is not true biblically, historically, theologically, or even constitutionally. The final authority of this country does not rest in some decree of a civil magistrate. It rests in the Constitution of the United States, which clearly outlines the fact that the United States is to not have tyrants rule over them. King Herod was a tyrant. You want to know what a tyrant looks like? Look at King Herod. Because in this passage of Scripture, what we are looking at are four characteristics often marking ungodly civil magistrates. So what do they look like? How do they think? What sort of decisions do they make? Well, there's four characteristics. And we looked at the first two last time. First, we saw that ungodly civil magistrates are notoriously irrational. We saw in verses 14 through 16 that King Herod brought together his political advisors to try to ascertain who this Jesus was. He had already, at this point, killed John the Baptist. And so, some of his advisors say in verse 14 that Jesus is John raised from the dead. Others said in verse 15, he's Elijah. That wasn't accurate because Elijah was actually John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the second coming of Elijah. Then others said, verse 15, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Well, true enough, Jesus was a prophet, the prophet of prophets, but he wasn't like one of the prophets of old because Moses said he would be different than all the other prophets because he would be the final voice the people must listen to. And there would be major consequences for not listening to the voice of Jesus. He was like one of the prophets of old because he had human flesh and he came from Israel. But he was unlike the prophets of old because he was the God-man. And he was the final voice of God. And we saw in verse 16 that when Herod heard these three views, he said, yep, John whom I beheaded has been raised. That's who Jesus is. In spite of maybe what his advisors said, in spite of the obvious fact that that was a superstitious idea, not resting on any sort of evidence that Jesus was John raised from the dead, this was his conclusion. This was an irrational man. He was blinded by his own human wisdom. There's nothing here in these verses about him looking to the Old Testament Scriptures because the God of this world had blinded his mind. He was an unbeliever and he couldn't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power had gone to his head. He was irrational. One of the clearest evidences of God's judgment on a nation is that he gives to a nation irrational leadership. Those who make ridiculous decisions that make no sense to anybody who's thinking. But blinded by pride, blinded by power, blinded by fame, blinded by wealth, they'll do the stupidest things. That always marks ungodly civil magistrates. They are notoriously irrational. Well, we saw a second characteristic. Not only are they notoriously irrational, but secondly, they are grossly immoral. We saw this in verses 17 through 20. Of course, Herod arrested John, put him in prison. Verse 17 says, because of Herodias, that was Herod's wife, his brother Philip's wife he had taken and he had married her. And John had been saying, verse 18, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Again, in the Greek, we pointed it out last time, this was not a one-off sermon. Now, this wasn't just a one-time thing. The language there of verse 18, he had been saying to Herod. I mean, he had maybe preached a message, a series of messages on the fact that this king had committed adultery. Not only adultery, but incest. Because he had married 
his brother Philip's wife. And he had also divorced his wife. And Herodias had divorced her husband. So three sins, divorce, adultery, and incest. This is gross, gross immorality. And John calls him out for it by what standard? The standard of God's law. John doesn't appeal to some political document. He says to Herod, you have violated God's law. Implication, you are under God's law whether you recognize it or not. This is what all biblical preaching does. Church doesn't have one message for its people and another message for the world and another message for politicians. It matters not if politicians are professing Christians. They're still obligated to obey God's law. They're not above God's law because we live in the sophisticated West. There's still only one true king. And of course, you can smell political corruption. And you can know there is always immorality going on behind the scenes when there are ungodly civil magistrates. That's what prompts them to do what they do. If they have themselves on the throne of their heart, they're going to do what best serves them. Power for them. Pleasure for them. Sin for them. And that is exactly what we have in the example of Herod. And then there's Herodias, verse 19. She had a grudge against John, wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Sort of another interesting point. Ungodly civil magistrates know right from wrong. They know righteousness and holiness when they see it. They know righteous and holy standards when they see it. It's very interesting to me that Herod never complains or argues back with John that he wasn't in sin. He never tries to defend his sinful lifestyle. He knows in his conscience that he's broken God's law. Romans 1 says, everyone has a conscience that knows right from wrong. This is not an example of an ungodly civil magistrate not knowing what the standards are because the standards are written on the heart and on the conscience. This is just an example of a bitter wife who is evil and angry and vindictive and a cowardly man who refuses to listen to his own conscience, refuses to listen to the preaching of John. And he will do so to his own detriment. Well, that then brings us to the third mark of an ungodly civil magistrate. Ungodly civil magistrates are notoriously irrational. They are grossly immoral. And number three, they are arrogantly incompetent. Arrogantly incompetent. Verses 21 through 24. Verse 21 says, But an opportunity came... When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. The opportunity that Herodias wanted, right? Because we read earlier in verses 17 through 20 that she had a grudge against John, so she was plotting. An opportunity came. Referring back to Herodias' desire for John to be put to death. That's what verse 19 says. She wanted him to be put to death. But she could not because she could not convince Herod because he had somewhat of a conscience remaining. So she saw her best opportunity by taking advantage of the king's immorality. It says there that Herod, in verse 21, on his birthday gave a banquet. Now that's not arrogant at all to throw your own birthday party. I'm going to have a birthday bash. And who am I going to invite? All just the most important people of the known world. High-ranking political elite, military brass. As verse 21 says, nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Just a little small party. Don't want to make a big deal about it. These were all the head honchos, the politically powerful, the militarily successful, the socially elite. 
By the way, women were not invited to these things, but Herodias knew the sorts of sordid entertainment and reveling that went on there, and this was an opportunity to hatch her plot. Common among the Herodians were stag-like parties, complete with female entertainers and drunkenness. Now, the word that was used was the heteria. These were the professional court dancers and prostitutes. Now, I want to go back uh, just for a moment um, to Luke chapter 13, because we actually understand how Jesus viewed Herod, because the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 13. This is an important point. Verse 31 tells us in Luke 13 that at that very hour some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Oh, I wonder what Jesus thinks about that. We don't have to guess. Verse 32, And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow the third day I finish my course. That's how Jesus viewed Herod, as a fox. A wise, politically shrewd individual. Jesus was honest about that. But as a shrewd politician, which he certainly was, he was outsmarted by his wife in this case. Because, notice verse 22, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now this scene is similar to the events in Esther chapter 1. And I am personally convinced that as Mark writes this, he wants us to think back to Esther chapter 1. When Queen Vashti refused to entertain King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, with her beauty. But here there's no resistance. The restraints are off. There's no morality in this government. I mean, can you believe this? Herod's daughter came in and danced. I'll keep it G-rated because the Bible does. But this was the duty of professional dancers and prostitutes that his daughter was now engaging in. If you can understand the picture. We don't know her name, because the Bible doesn't say, but Josephus tells us that her name was Salome. It was the stepdaughter of Herod. She came in and danced and pleased Herod and his guests, as verse 22 says. The erotic dancing caused a raucous among these powerful man, men. And this gross immorality is really unbelievable to think that King Herod would allow his stepdaughter to perform in such a way, not to mention the fact that it was motivated and prompted by Herodias, her mother. You see, we have a tendency to think that the world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Nothing new under the sun. I cannot, I have one daughter, but I cannot in my mind think of something more depraved and degrading than having your daughter do something like this. It's disgusting. The rest of verse 22 tells us that in the midst of this drunkenness, Herod loudly and proudly and hastily and incompetently because his senses were numbed made a public promise. Notice it in verse 23, or verse 22, the end of it, the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Oh my word, how foolish, how reckless, how ridiculous, how embarrassing. Give you whatever you want because you've done this and satisfied the elite, military and political figureheads. That's bad enough, but he dug a deeper hole. He doubled down on his promise. Verse 23, it says he vowed to her. He made a public oath. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Arrogant, incompetent. Because he didn't have the power to give what he promised. He didn't have half a kingdom. Remember, I told you he was one of four sons. Herod the Great divided his kingdom up among 
He was the second oldest. He got a fourth of the kingdom. He called himself King Herod. He wasn't even a king. He was a tetrarch over Galilee and Perea. He didn't have a kingdom to give. Belonged to Rome, and Rome wouldn't allow him to give one acre of his land away because it really wasn't his land. This is just public bragging, showing off in front of the guests in the midst of a drunken stupor. That's all this is. And the language is that of a repeated oath, suggesting he lost his senses. He just kept on with it, vowing, repeating himself over and over like a drunk man standing on a table in the middle of a bar. It's a proverbial saying when he says here, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. He didn't have the ability to do that. He knew that. But basically he's saying, I'll give you whatever I'm capable of giving you, whatever it costs me, just ask me. Again, echoing back to the story of Esther, Esther won favor in King Xerxes' sight in the inner court. And he says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Even to the half of my kingdom. This was a foolish promise rooted in Herod's arrogance. And obviously, note this is incompetence. No guy that does something like this should ever be in charge of a whole bunch of people. And not only that, but he's been trapped not by some shrewd politician, but by his wife who had an axe to grind with John the Baptist. And we know that the conspiracy is full-blown. That's revealed in verse 24 because Salome goes back to her mother to get her direction on how to accomplish the plan. Notice your Bibles, verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? I mean, how do we go about this? And she, Herodias, said, you need to ask for the head of John the Baptist. The head of John the Baptist. Herodias' treachery is akin to Jezebel's power, I think, over King Ahab when Elijah was persecuted. Perhaps Mark even has that story in mind as well. Another wicked woman. You remember that Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. He wanted to turn it into a vegetable garden. And he offered Naboth money, but Naboth turned it down because he had received that plot of land through hereditary right. So what happens? Jezebel comes along. She lines up false witnesses against Naboth who testify against Naboth, saying that he blasphemed God and the king. Naboth was found guilty. He was stoned to death along with his son. So much for him having his vineyard and his sons. And it was Elijah the prophet who denounced Ahab. He predicted God's judgment to fall on Ahab's house for the lies that were thrown against Naboth and that injustice. Well, Herod thinks that Jesus is John raised from the dead, but really Herodias is Jezebel raised from the dead. Such was her request, the head of John the Baptist. This is asking for his execution. Little did Herod know that his party is getting ready to be interrupted. His arrogant incompetence is going to be revealed. He doesn't know that. He's still reveling. Let me just say this. Civil magistrates who don't operate within God's prescribed laws open themselves up to their own standard. And such... Arrogance will eventually lead to incompetence. To rule apart from God's word, to rule apart from God's law, to think that you have all the answers, to think you can do and live however you want to live, and everything's going to work out okay, it'll never happen. That's why you ought to pray for godly civil magistrates. Some of you ought to consider running for political office. Because... God blesses a nation that follows His word and follows His laws. He's not obligated to bless a nation or politicians that are godless, immoral, incompetent, arrogant. Political incompetence is always a result of God's judgment. 
Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Herod was a fool. God tells a people, in effect, you want an evil ruler, go ahead. You can have him, and you can have what comes with him. His irrational, arrogant, foolish decision-making. We are living that now. We are living that now. Make no mistake about it. This is God's judgment on our nation. He has given us ungodly civil magistrates. Ungodly civil magistrates are notoriously irrational. They are grossly immoral. They are arrogantly incompetent. And fourth and finally, they are dangerously irresolute. They're dangerously irresolute. Verses 25 through 29. The biggest danger of ungodly civil magistrates lies in the fact that they are not, as I said earlier, motivated by God's laws and God's convictions. They have no resolutions. They're irresolute, convictionless. No principles, no morals. And we see this with Herod. He didn't operate from conviction but compromise what he could get. Not lawfully, but self-centeredly. And we see this with Herod because, as we're going to see in these verses, once he realized his mistake, he stubbornly refused to fix it because he didn't want to go back on his promise because it would have made him look bad. He worshipped himself in his image over the interests of others. He was no different than Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning. Here is my golden image, bow down and worship. So notice verse 25. And she, that is Salome, came. She came in immediately with haste to the king. I mean, she can't wait. And she asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Matthew 14.8 says, right here. Right now. You said half the kingdom? I want this now. Spoiled brat. Stepdaughter. Just like her stepfather. I want this now, daddy. I want the head of John the Baptist. On a platter? What kind of birthday bash is this? You can imagine the commotion. The reveling. She walks back in. Everything is silenced. And she makes this request. He had, of course, made a vow. Turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 5 for a moment. Leviticus chapter 5. What does the law of God say about this? Well, let's just look. What does God's law say about vows? Verse 4. If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath... To do evil or to do good. doesn't matter. Any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering and the priest shall make atonement for him and for his sin. You remember the story of Jephthah in the Bible, in the book of Judges? He's preparing for battle. He makes a rash vow that if his army gains victory, he would sacrifice the first thing that came out of his house. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, and I certainly am not, but the times that I've gone away on a business trip, for example, working on my doctorate, when I come home, nine times out of ten, before I get out of my truck, one or two or three of my kids are going to be coming out of the house. How could he not have known what was going to happen? This is a foolish vow. But he wasn't only foolish, he was idiotic. Because he won the battle, he came home, sure enough, his daughter walked out the door, and he was dumb enough to think he had to follow through with his vow. What did Leviticus 5 say? If you make a rash vow, don't make it worse by sticking to it. Repent. There's forgiveness for that. 
The making of vows is not foolish. The making of foolish vows is foolish. Many of you made a vow this morning. Vowing to support this church and be a faithful member of this church. That's a noble thing to do. It's not sinful. It's honorable. But to make a foolish vow? Herod made a foolish vow. He had a way out of his vow. He could have said, Daughter, I promise to bless you with a gift, not that I would commit a crime. But when God's law doesn't rule your life, you derive your ethics from your own situation. Situational ethics. Neither the voice of John the Baptist nor the voice of his conscience could prevent him from honoring this vow because he was trying to save face. So we read in verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, that was his excuse. I made an oath. Here's the real reason. And because of his guests. He didn't want to be embarrassed. You think he really cared that he made an oath and a vow to God? That he would give her whatever? He didn't care about that. The real issue were the guests. He did not want to break his word to her because he would be embarrassed. He was exceedingly sorry. This is not godly grief. This is worldly sorrow. Sorry I got caught and instead of fixing it and having a little bit of humility, I'm going to make the situation worse. He was bothered by the fact that in the ancient world, for a king to make an oath and not come through with it would be a sign of weakness. He would lose respect. And when God's law doesn't rule a conscience or a nation, it always leads to dangerous and foolish ends. Always. I mean, decision-making today is not made according to oaths and vows, but there are a lot of promises under the table being made. You don't think there's a bigger agenda going on? It's all sorts of promises. He didn't want to lose face, and he didn't want to lose his kingdom, and he didn't want to lose respect. So we read, therefore, of the fate of John the Baptist. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. This is horrific. It's beyond horrific, it's barbaric. It's likely that John was being held in Herod's palace, located at Machaerus, Josephus tells us. Above was the palace, below was a dungeon. Well, mark my words, there was a party in the palace, but there was a greater party in heaven when this beloved martyr's head was lopped off. Faithful prophet. Well, what a horrific, barbaric act. But I would submit to you, not as barbaric as slaughtering one and a half million babies a year in the wombs of mothers, which our nation not only votes for candidates who stand on that platform, but there's actual legislation to support that. You wonder why Joe Biden is president and Kamala Harris is vice president. Because we're a barbaric society with barbaric policies. And why? Because the law of God has vanished from the consciences of those in office. And we as the citizens have elected them. It's worse because 5th century church father Jerome says that once that head was brought on a platter to Herod, that Herodias came in and began mutilating the head further, cutting the tongue out. Make no mistake about it, the twisted family tree of the Herodians is but a parable of the United States of America. We have lost our conscience. Barbaric, sinful, blood on our hands. How do we recover it? We preach the gospel. We declare God's law. We tell sinners they're in sin. They're in need of Christ or they go to hell if they don't repent. And most of all, we obey God. We don't use Romans 13 to hide behind. 
we obey God. What do we read in Acts chapter 5? We strictly charge you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 Many today, even in evangelicalism, are just like Salome. Dad, I know it was wrong, but I, I was just doing what mom told me to do. Christians today say, I, I know I'm supposed to go to church, but just doing what the government says. Government says I need to be vaccinated, just doing what they say. Just doing what they say. little pinch of incense. It's never right to do a wrong in order to do a right. Salome represents Christians in our own culture who say we have an obligation to obey the government no matter what by appealing to Romans 13. But the government is not God. And when civil magistrates disobey the law of the land, the Constitution, and the law of heaven, the Scriptures, we are under no obligation to obey them. Better to obey God than man. Better to fear God rather than fear man. See, John the Baptist was killed because he was a man of principle. He was a man of conviction. Herod was not. Herod operated according to his own standard and his own interests and his own opinions and his own law. With respect to vaccines, it's according to your conscience whether or not you're vaccinated. That's between you and the Lord. But Romans 13 has nothing to do with vaccinations. Nothing. Herod thought Jesus was John raised from the dead. But he wasn't. He was the Son of God. And here's another little clue about ungodliness among civil magistrates. You remember in the Old Testament, Deborah, the judge, was raised, no pun intended, out of judgment on God's people because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And now we have the first female vice president of the United States. It's not a coincidence. Jezebel deceived Ahab, Herodias deceived Herod, Eve deceived Adam. What's new? What's new? Doing anything other than according to God's ways and God's laws leads to ruin. Whether it's in the home, the church, or society. Herod was irresolute. He had no convictions. Even when his conscience spoke to him and John preached to him and he liked to hear John preach, He suppressed that truth. He had raw ambition. We read about him. His raw ambition and arrogant ways without conviction or principle led him to get involved in a secret plot to become king. He was influenced once again by Herodias. He tried to supplant Herodias' brother Herod Agrippa I, but when Emperor Caligula heard about this self-serving plot. He had Herod Antipas exiled with his wife in Gaul. Did not end well for him. And the last time we read about him is in Luke chapter 23. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. This is at the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus standing before Herod. Notice what this says. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Any sort of spiritual curiosity he may have had is now reduced to just the desire to see a magic trick. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, accusing Jesus. And here's Herod. Courageous? No. Coward. Compromiser. Verse 11. Herod, with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with one another. 
Just another political alliance to get what he needed. Behavior unbecoming of a king to join in with the soldiers. Not even an officer would join in with the soldiers to do that. Herod had no conviction. None. No morals. He was irresolute. The government of the United States has no convictions. It's completely irresolute. No conscience. The conscience of the nation is the church. The conscience of the nation is the pulpit. The conscience of the nation is your voice in declaring the truth. Declaring the law of God, living forth the law of God. John lost his head, but he kept his conscience. Herod kept his head, completely lost his conscience. Complicit in killing Jesus. What a sad ending. Jesus had nothing to say to Herod. Nothing. Nothing. And Jesus will have nothing to say to ungodly civil magistrates who harden their heart as Pharaoh did beyond softening. But Mark's account ends with hope. Notice verse 29 back in Mark. When his disciples heard of it, that is the beheading of John the Baptist, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Well, that's a preview of what they'll do with Jesus' body, right? Joseph of Arimathea. I think Mark wants to remind us that even with the death of John, there's hope. And that even with the death of Jesus, there is hope. The mission of Jesus will continue. Jesus raised and commissioned disciples who were the foundation of the church, the apostles. The church is being built throughout the world today. Herod ended his life by mocking the one who John said was greater than himself. And God's voice no longer spoke to his hardened conscience. The church is the conscience of the nation. How so? By preaching and living the law of God. Making sure that you're living a holy life, a godly life. Herod saw the life of John that he was a righteous and holy man. Being clear about God's law. What is sin? Abortion is murder. Homosexuality is sin. Adultery is sin. Secondly, by calling out disobedient and wicked civil magistrates, just as John did. You have a voice, use it. Number three, declaring the good news of the kingdom, living in the hope that Jesus will be the final king, not becoming disillusioned, but trusting that his kingdom is being built. And maybe most of all, not doing what Herod refused to do. Herod feared everyone but God. Feared his wife, feared the people. He was condemned because of it. So all of this is a snapshot of what an ungodly civil magistrate looks like. How he acts, what he does, how he thinks. And John the Baptist is a picture to us of how Christians, how Christians are to live. Fearless, with wisdom, with purity, but with boldness in declaring the good news of the kingdom of God. Because when the gospel is declared, sinners are saved from the clutches of Satan. Souls are birthed into the kingdom of God and God's kingdom expands. And we long for that day when his kingdom will fill this world. That must be our prayer. That must be our hope. And that must be what we believe because it's what God's word tells us. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for these scriptures. Lord, difficult scriptures to consider, to look at, only because of the gruesome nature of them. But in all of it, there is this reality of hostility toward the church. Lord, we pray that we would be as innocent as doves and as wise as serpents. Help us to discern the times. Help us to be bold and courageous. Help us to be loving and faithful in proclaiming the gospel. Help us to be good citizens insofar as that's outlined in Scripture by obeying your law first and foremost. Father, help us not to compromise under the pressure and the weight of secularism and hostility, threats and intimidation. We pray you would preserve this church, preserve the preaching and the teaching of truth 
And Father, if there are any here this morning that don't know Christ, Lord, we're confident that our chief shepherd's voice will be heard by the true sheep. We pray you would draw them in. We pray and ask all these things as we close our service with the hymn. We ask your blessing and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.